The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Anyone who has read past the poetry of Walt Whitman and who wanted to go further to see what he was about will have found the same thing I had, just a huge trove of mostly correspondence, but then there's the whole issue of his notebooks, and I think it's nine volumes now that he spent, uh, nine volumes that were collected by Horace Traubel in the late 1880s uh, and just before his death, uh, collected conversations between Horace Traubel and Walt Whitman on a mostly daily basis. And just to give a sense of uh, where I was when I first found out about these things in my 20s and where I am now, uh, back then I wouldn't read any excerpts from these things. I wanted to get them all, like the whole thing, all to myself and to go through them myself and to find the best parts of them myself. And uh, as the years have passed, what that means, what that has meant, is that uh, I really haven't read any of it. So that I came to uh, the wisdom of age, you might say. I came across uh, Gary Schmidgall's uh, edition of Whitman's poetry. It's just called Selected Poems, 1855 to 1892. Uh, It's a wonderful collection of the poetry because it uh, presents all of the poetry in its earliest published form. As we know, Whitman kept revising and reordering and doing all of these things, tinkering with leaves of grass throughout uh, the rest of his life from 1855 until 1892. And whether you uh, agree with it or not, uh, it does seem to be the case that the early poetry, the earliest versions of the poems, are the best ones. And so if you want to find those earliest ones, the best place to look at the moment is Gary Schmidgall's book. But also at the end are selections from his notebooks and selections from his uh, talk with uh, Horace Traubel. And I just wanted to read those here because they are basically probably the things that I would have found uh, only through great labor and great expense as well uh, years ago if I had ever uh, had the time to do it. So this is mostly Whitman uh, talking to himself or talking to Horace Traubel about all of these things. Uh, The first, we'll start with, uh, with uh, with the notebooks where he is planning out leaves of grass. 
He says, make no quotations and no reference to any other writers. Lumber the writing with nothing. Let it go as lightly as a bird flies in the air or a fish swims in the sea. Be careful to temper down too much. And the, uh, the image Whitman gives of himself as someone who is not a literary person, who has not read books, is just belied uh, by this very first one. Someone has to have read a great deal to have come to the conclusion that his own poetry will contain no quotations and no references to any other writers. This next one says from September of 1856, this is after the first Leaves of Grass has been published. Leaves of Grass must be called not objective, but altogether subjective. I know runs through them as a personal refrain. Yet the Greek poems, also the Teutonic poems, I assume he means the Eddas, also Shakespeare and all the great masters have been objective, epic. They have described characters, events, wars, heroes, etc. But then, of course, uh, when the Civil War happens, doesn't Walt Whitman do the subjective with war and heroes. Uh, he ends up finding a way to do war, events, characters, and heroes in his subjective way. And I would think that you could say that the Greeks and Shakespeare handle that as well. But it's nice to see Whitman struggling, trying to make a theory that justifies his own poetry. Uh, we need to do that, even if it doesn't quite stand up. And here he says, around 1856 or so, make the works, that is, just do the poetry. Do not go into criticisms or arguments at all. Make full-blooded, rich, flush, natural works. Insert natural things, indestructibles, idioms, characteristics, rivers, states, persons, etc. Be full of strong, sensual germs. And here he is uh, in 1856 or so. Many of, this, many of these things are not dated. This indirect mode of attack is better than all direct modes of attack. The spirit of the above should pervade all my poems. Avoid all the, quote, intellectual subtleties and the, quote, withering doubts and the, quote, blasted hopes and unrequited loves and ennui and wretchedness and the whole lurid and artistical melodramatic effects. Preserve perfect calmness and sanity. In the best poems appears the human body, well-formed, natural, accepting itself, unaware of shame, loving that which is necessary to make it complete, proud of its strength, active, receptive, a mother, a father. And I just made a note here when he's talking about uh, unrequited loves and blasted hopes. Uh, we are now living in the, uh, uh, the post-postmodern world where, where we have done what Whitman said. Uh, the, the literary types have, have done away with all of these storytelling tropes of withering doubts, unrequited loves, ennui, etc. Uh, but what have they replaced them with? I, I've mentioned before 
what a revelation it was to connect the the folkloristic aspects of the book of Genesis, where you have just for instance the, the story of of uh, young men meeting women, uh, including their future wives at, at wells, where that happens over and over again, or where you have the story of um, well, there are other ones where, where there are these uh, folklore patterns in these stories. And it was a revelation when I connected those with what we think of as the cliches or the patterns of, uh, of a detective story. Um, perhaps in some way, uh, the popular mind, the stories that stick with us, demand things like that. Um, I heard recently of a of an interview that uh, Quentin Tarantino gave, where he basically said that if you take the cliches um, and the the expected plots of what uh, what are derogatorily called uh, genre fiction, crime fiction, crime stories, um, and for other people it's horror stories or science fiction stories, if you start with those and then you can sort of run around and have fun uh, subverting them or telling them in a different way. But perhaps we really do, uh, outside of what Whitman is saying or against what he's saying, perhaps we do need these cliches, these patterns, and these tropes to tell our stories. He didn't need them for his poetry, but for stories, uh, I think we do, at least these days. He says, it seems to me to avoid all poetic similes, to be faithful to the perfect likelihoods of nature, healthy, exact, simple, and disdaining ornament. And again in the, in the margins I wrote, but couldn't we use some ornament now, where when poetry is basically, uh, the popular poetry seems to be shapeless or academic or just intellectual. Uh, couldn't we use some ornament? Uh, he says around 1857 or so, I must not fail to saturate my poems with things, substantial American scenes, climates, names, places, words, permanent facts. Include every important river and mountain, animals, trees, crops, grains, vegetables, and flowers. That's wonderful. And in about 1856 or so, uh, Saturday, June 21st, it seems to me quite clear and determined that I should concentrate my powers on leaves of grass, not diverting any of my means, strength, or interests to the construction of anything else of any other book. And uh, that is a struggle I have, and it's nice to see Whitman doing the same thing, because of course he did go on to write other things. Um, other than his poetry. He says, no one, this is in the early 1850s, another undated piece, no one will perfectly enjoy me who has not some of my own rudeness, sensuality, and hauteur. And from the late 1850s, no, I do not choose to write a poem on a lady's sparrow like Catullus, or on a parrot like Ovid, nor love joys like Anacreon, nor even like Homer, nor the siege of Jerusalem like Torcato Tasso, uh, 
nor as Shakespeare. What have these themes to do with America? Or what are they to us except as beautiful studies reminiscing? All those are good. They are what they are. I know they should not have been different. I do not say I will furnish anything better, but instead I will aim at high immortal marks. American, the robust, large, manly character, the perfect woman, the illustriousness of sex, which I will celebrate. And there he is just struggling. Uh, it, it must have been uh, impossible, uh, a, a great strain to struggle against uh, the uh, the epic or the uh, or the um, uh, the reputation or the the expectations of somebody like Shakespeare it must have taken a great deal of strength to not do that. Uh, here he is. Uh, this says it is undateable. Uh, in the future leaves of grass, be more severe with the final revision of the poem. Nothing will do. Not one word or sentence that is not perfectly clear. With positive purpose, harmony with the name, nature, and drift of the poem. Also, no ornaments, especially no ornamental adjectives, unless they have come molten hot and imperiously proved themselves. Let's say that in a creative writing class. No ornamental adjectives, unless they have come molten hot and imperiously proved themselves. No ornamental similes at all, not one. Perfect, transparent clearness. Sanity and health are wanted. That is the divine style. Oh, if it can be attained. And 150 or so years later, 160 years later, uh, people are trying to find that uh, divine style uh, with the similes and the ornaments but not the worn-out ones, you might say. Let me see a few pages further on here. This is Whitman, about 1855, uh, with a heading that just says Depressions. This is important to read. This is Walt Whitman in the year 1855, around 1855, when he has either published Leaves of Grass for the first time, or uh, he has at least written all of the poems. And still, Walt Whitman says this, Everything I have done seems to me blank and suspicious. I doubt whether my greatest thoughts, as I had supposed them, are not shallow, and people will most likely laugh at me. My pride is impotent, my love gets no response. The complacency of nature is hateful. I am filled with restlessness. I am incomplete. Now, that's a lesson about uh, Homer taking out the garbage, if I ever heard one. Uh, imagine having leaves of grass in your head. Imagine having that spark. Just imagine, if, if you're not a fan of Whitman, just imagine the poet or the writer or the artist you most admire, and imagine the work of theirs that you most admire, and imagine the story that we're usually given uh, about these creative people that they have these huge works in their head and that uh, uh, making them and completing them and giving them to the world, uh, it must fulfill them somehow or make them happy. Uh, and very often uh, that isn't the case or it certainly isn't the case 
all the time. There is that deflation that comes. Uh, in Whitman's case, for being probably for being misunderstood or just rejected in his own time. Or it could just be uh, doubt, just plain old doubt after it has all come and left his head. Just doubt. Let's see. Here are, now we'll get to the parts where he interviewed, where he was interviewed by Horace Traubel. It says from March of 80, 1888 until Whitman's death in uh, March of 1892, Horace Traubel visited the poet almost every day. And these are the things that Whitman said on various topics. These are my favorite parts. Um, here's the first one. Whitman says, Leaves of grass has had an advantage. It has had a stormy early life. Nothing could make up for the loss of this. It was a priceless privilege. Ease, comfort, and acceptation, exception, being accepted would have ruined us. And here he says, uh, and how might Whitman have reacted to acceptance of leaves of grass at long last? In the summer of 1888, the thought evoked a little hilarity, and Whitman says, I wouldn't know what to do, how to comport myself, if I lived long enough to become accepted, to get in demand, to ride on the crest of the wave. I would have to go scratching, questioning, hitching about, to see if this was the real critter, the old Walt Whitman, to see if Walt Whitman had not suffered a destructive transformation, become apostate, formal, reconciled to the conventions, subdued from the old independence. And here he is talking about how his own friends were would get upset with him for revising Leaves of Grass. He says, How William O'Connor would storm and cry out if I made a change in Leaves of Grass, a comma even. He was worst of all. And Dr. Richard Maurice Buck next, easily next, though not quite as bad. And even Mrs. Anne Gilchrist, who, if she ever showed passion at all, came nearest it in the matter of revisions. Buck probably does not know that long, long ago, before the leaves had ever been to the printer, I had them in half a dozen forms, larger, smaller, recast, outcast, taken apart, put together, viewing them from every point I knew. Even at the last, not putting them together and, and out with any idea that they must eternally remain unchanged. Buck mistakes the danger. There was no danger. I have always been disposed to hear the worst that could be said against the poems, even the most rasping things, everything, in fact, which would serve to give me an honest new point of observation. That was a necessary part of my career. And that's the thing, isn't it? Uh, on the one hand, especially with William Wordsworth as well, uh, Whitman and Wordsworth both spent the rest of their lives revising and uh, tinkering around with the powerful poetry they wrote, usually, uh, whether in their 30s or early 40s. And so you can say that that is what they needed as people, as uh, poets, uh, to just uh, help them get by. But on the other hand, uh, the power of the original poetry is what you might say the rest of us need, the best version of them, 
both of those things need to be uh, acknowledged, it seems. Here he says, uh, uh, Whitman recalled the main impetus behind Leaves of Grass as being one of fearless self-will. On October 8, 1888, he told Horace Traubel, So it is with Leaves of Grass. It must drive on, drive on, without protest, without explanation, without hesitation, on and on. No apologies, no dickers, no compromises. Just drive on and on, no matter how rough, how dangerous the road may be. And here he says, I suppose every man has his purposes. I had mine, to have no purpose, to state, to capture, to to state, to capture the drift of a life, to let things flow in one after another, take their places their own way. My worst struggle was not with ideas, anything of that sort, but against the literariness of the age. For I too, like all others, was born in the vesture of this false notion of literature, and no one so born can entirely, I say entirely, escape the taint. Though, as for me, Looking back on the battleground, I pride myself that I have escaped the pollution as much as any. And here he is talking about uh, his mother, Louisa Van Velser Whitman. Whitman says, The reality, the simplicity, the transparency of my dear, dear mother's life was responsible for the main things in the letters Whitman wrote to her, as in Leaves of Grass itself. How much I owe her. Leaves of grass is the flower of her temperament, active in me. And here is a moment when Horace Traubel asked about Whitman's family's response to leaves of grass. And Whitman said, No one of my people, the people near to me, ever had any time for leaves of grass, thought it more than an ordinary piece of work, if that. Not even his mother, Traubel asks. No, I think not. Not even her. There is, as I say, no one in my immediate family who follows me out on that line. My dear mother had every general faith in me, but that is where it stopped. She stood before leaves of grass, mystified and defeated. And his brother George Whitman? Walt smiled and said, You know that George believes in pipes, not poems. I think uh, George Whitman was a plumber. Let's see. Uh, in a letter of December 2nd, 1877, J.T. Trowbridge had long ago written that he was, quote, astonished that these latter-day critics should have so little to say of the first leaves of grass or venture to speak of them only apologetically. Whitman responded to a rereading of this letter in 1888, saying, I think I know what Trowbridge means, too. I do not consider his position unreasonable. There was an immediateness in the 1855, the first edition of Leaves of Grass, an incisive directness that was perhaps not repeated in any section of poems afterward added to the book, a hot, unqualifying temper, an insulting arrogance, to use a few strong words that would not have been as natural to the periods that followed. 
We miss the ecstasy of statement in some of the afterwork. Miss that and get something different. Something in some ways undoubtedly better. But what's the use of arguing the unarguable question? And there he is sort of talking to himself about the process I just mentioned. Uh, he needs to revise. Uh, he needs to keep writing and adding things while still admitting that, uh, and he has to say that uh, he thinks the things that came after are better. Uh, but it is so powerful that we can hold two versions of them in our mind, and that is a-okay. Uh, Whitman uh, here mentions, I am aware that Leaves of Grass lends itself readily to parody, that it invites parody, given the right man to do it. But in the margins I wrote, but not imitation. It's easy to make fun of Whitman. It's easy to parody him. Uh, but as far as I'm aware, it is impossible. I've never seen anyone imitate him. Um, here he is talking about the young men he cared for uh, during the Civil War. Whitman told Horace Traubel that his going off to war was, quote, the very center circumference umbilicus of my whole career. Uh, one day, a few months later, when he was 70, Whitman came across the draft of a letter written to one of his Manhattan friends from Washington over a quarter of a century earlier. In it, he described his hospital work and reminisced about his profit from these harrowing ministrations. And Whitman says, What did I get? Well, I got the boys, for one thing, the boys, thousands of them. They were, they are, they will be mine. I gave myself for them, myself. I got the boys, then I got leaves of grass. But for this I would have never had leaves of grass, the consummated book, the last confirming word. I got that. The boys, the leaves, I got them. It is worth noting, however, that when Whitman was asked if he made leaves a part of his hospital work, he replied that he could not remember once having given a copy of it to a wounded soldier. And that is also just the juggle, having two different versions of Whitman in our minds. Imagine being a soldier, uh, a wounded soldier in a hospital bed, and having some guy coming up to you and not caring for you, not offering to do things for you, not bringing you food or clothing or gifts, but instead saying, you know, I wrote this book of poems. Uh, Whitman uh, knew better than to do that. Here Whitman is talking about sex for a few lines. Though Whitman had in fact toned down some of the potent sexuality of the early editions of Leaves of Grass, he spoke very differently on March 20th, 1889, saying, had I leaves of grass to write over again, knowing what I know now, I do not think I should in any way touch or abate the sexual portions, as you call them. But in the other matter, in the, quote, good and, quote, evil business, I should be more definite, more emphatic than ever. And, of course, the, the gift of Gary Schmidgall's edition of Whitman's poetry is that by... Um, uh, by using the earliest versions of each poem, he is, uh, he is reinstating all of the material that was deemed most explicit back when they were first published. 
Here Whitman says, um, or in May 1891, Horace Traubel tells Whitman of a debate on the future of American literature, during which one suggestion is for building on some great English model. And Whitman erupts and says, damn the professor, damn the model, build on hell. No, no, no. That is not what we are here for. That is not the future. That's not leaves of grass, opposite to all that. Here, Horace, here, in leaves of grass, are 400, 430 pages of let fly. No art, no schemes, no fanciful, delicate, elegant constructiveness, but let fly. And here's a wonderful connection that I never knew Whitman had. Whitman saw the rural landscapes of the painter Jean-Francois Millet in person for the first time on a trip to Boston. He was deeply moved, especially by Millet's painting The Sower, and later he told Traubel, uh, the leaves are really only Millet in another form. And here, Whitman on October 1st, 1889, warned of the challenge presented by his life's work. I almost pity the young man or woman who grapples with leaves of grass. It is so hard a tussle. And here he says, Some of my simplest pieces have created the most noise. I have been told that my poem, A Child Went Forth, was a favorite with William Wadsworth Longfellow, but to me there is very little in that poem. That is one of my penalties, to have the real vital utterances, if there are any in me, go undetected. And I think I've quoted here the, in one of these episodes the remark made by the the critic Harold Bloom, where he says he has found some of his books in used bookstores, and the passages that are underlined, the passages that are highlighted, the ones that readers seem to have been wrestling with the most, were the ones that he never really gave much thought to. While, whereas on the other hand, it's it, the conclusion he came to was that the the work and the sentences, in Whitman's case, the poetry, that you really work on, that you think is really important, is usually the stuff that uh, nobody notices. On June 24, 1890, Whitman asserted one of the most obvious characteristics of Leaves of Grass, namely its richly autobiographical impetus. And Whitman says, I should say that anyone, to get a hold of me, all I have written, would see that all my work is autobiographical, yes, and that this autobiography finds its center and explication in the poems, in Leaves of Grass. And I have written in the margins here, that might be its problem, uh, that it is 430 pages, as Whitman said, of one voice, of one life, and that uh, if there's one thing that he couldn't learn past Shakespeare from, it was that, that uh, uh, in the plays you find Shakespeare spread all around, or you find him nowhere, really. Uh, he is in all of the characters, or he is, he is nobody but all of his characters. But Whitman only had the one voice, the one character himself to do. 
And that could also be why the late poetry suffers. How, how many times can you write these long lines about yourself or about your experience of your country uh, without getting just a little bit tired? Um, and here is Whitman. Uh, in the fall of 1891, Whitman offered several passing remarks about Leaves of Grass. On October 2nd, he whimsically imagined what might be in store for his book in the future. And <laughs> poor Whitman, he says, uh, It is one of my dreads that there may come a time and people to exposit, to explicate Leaves of Grass. And on October 9th, he said that his main purpose was to leave men healthy, to fill them with a new atmosphere. And uh, that's just not something that you can get in an English class or with an English degree. Uh, if you say that you're studying English or you want to write poetry to leave people healthy and to fill them with a new atmosphere, uh, a great deal of the theorizing and the critical architecture that surrounds everything, and nowadays all the political stuff too, uh, would all just fall to the side. Um, and there we are. Uh, and here is uh, the last passage from Whitman that I will read today. Is it the last one? Let me see. I'll read one other thing, uh, two other things actually. This is from uh, a preface uh, that he gave to Leaves of Grass near the end of his life. He says, That I have not gained the acceptance of my own time, but have fallen back on fond dreams of the future, anticipations, that from a worldly and business point of view, Leaves of Grass has been worse than a failure, that public criticism on the book and myself as an author of it yet shows marked anger and contempt more than anything else, and, and that solely for publishing it, I have been the object of two or three pretty serious special official buffetings. It is all probably no more than I ought to have expected. I had my choice when I commenced. I bid neither for soft eulogies, big money returns, nor the approbation of existing schools and conventions. As fulfilled, or partially fulfilled, the best comfort of the whole business, after a small band of the dearest friends and the upholders ever vouchsafed to man or cause, doubtless all the more faithful and uncompromising, this little phalanx, I like that his followers are a little phalanx, for being so few, is that, unstopped and unwarped by any influence outside the soul within me, I have had my say entirely, my own way, and put it unerringly on record, the value thereof to be decided by time. And of course it was decided by time. And this is the last passage here. The leaves of grass is a mystery to me. I do not pretend myself to have solved it, not at all. Dr. Maurice Buck, in his book about Whitman, uh, he starts off with great vehemence to assert that leaves of grass means this and that and this and that and this. Oh, he stamps it down with a hammer, with the hammer of Thor. But even he, much as he really does know about it, has never caught this, that leaves of grass never started out to do anything, has no purpose, 
It has no definite beginning, middle, end. It is reflection. It is statement. It is to see and tell. It is to keep clear of judgments, lessons, schoolways. To be a world with all the mystery of that, all its movement, all its life. From this standpoint, I, myself, often stand in astonishment before the book, am defeated by it, lost in its curious revolutions, its whimsies, its overpowering momentum, lost as if a stranger, even as I am a stranger on this earth, driving about with it, knowing nothing of why or result. This way, you see, I am a spectator, too. And isn't that something as well? Um, you are gifted this huge voice for expression, and at the end of the day, you are a spectator to it. I have a little bit more time here, and we'll just share a small page of similar remarks made by W.B. Yeats about his own work, which seemed to me uh, uh, a good companion to what Whitman has said. In September 1888, let's remember uh, uh, Yeats was born in 1865, so this is very early on in Yeats's career. Uh, on the release of his first book of poetry, I believe, The Wanderings of Oshin, in September 1888, uh, William Butler Yeats says this, I am not very hopeful about the book. Somewhat inarticulate have I been, I fear. Some thing I had to say. Don't know that I have said it. All seems confused, incoherent, and articulate. Yet this I know, I am no idle poetaster. My life has been in my poems. To make them I have broken my life, in a mortar, as it were. I have braided in youth and fellowship, I have braided in it youth and fellowship, peace and worldly hopes. I have seen others enjoying while I stood alone with myself, commenting, commenting, a mere dead mirror on which things reflect themselves. I have buried my youth and raised over it a cairn. How old is he here? Uh, he's 23 years old. Is that right? Yeah. I have <laughs> 23-year-old saying this. I have buried my youth and raised over it a cairn. I probably would have said it when I was 23. One more time. I have buried my youth and raised over it a cairn of clouds. Someday I shall be articulate, perhaps. But this book I have no great hopes of. It is all sluggish, incoherent. It may make a few friends, perhaps, among people of my own sort. That is the most. Do what you can for it. So if there are people out there who've been working on something and, well, it's the usual thing I've been saying. Yeats felt it too. Whitman felt it too. Every this is what I just read from Whitman. Everything I have done seems to me blank and suspicious. I am filled with restlessness. I am incomplete. Um, there we are. Uh, this is Yeats in a letter in July from July of 1892. This is where he is talking about uh, someone has written to chide him or mock him or uh, just try and put him back in his place because they have heard that he is into the the occult stuff, astrology, um, uh, Madame Blavatsky, uh, the tarot, all this stuff. 
And this is Yeats uh, striking back a bit. And he says, It is surely absurd to hold me weak or otherwise, because I chose to persist in a study which I decided deliberately four or five years ago to make next to my poetry the most important pursuit of my life. Whether it be or not bad for my health can only be decided by one who knows what magic is, and not at all by any amateur. If I had not made magic my constant study, I could, have not, I could not have written my book about William Blake, nor would my play The Countess Kathleen have ever come to exist. The mystical life is the center, the mystical life is the center, he says, of all that I do and all that I think and all that I write. Go, Bill, is what I say. Uh, in October 1909, he says, I believe this is in a letter, uh, a performance of Hamlet is always to me what high mass is to a good Catholic. It is my supreme religious event. I see in it a soul jarred and broken away from the life of its world, a passionate preparation of sanctity. I feel that the play should seem to one not so much deep as full of lyric loftiness, and I feel this all the more because I am getting tired of our modern delight in the abyss. And I would guess that we are still, uh, have a modern delight uh, in the abyss. In 1914, he has written half, uh, about half of his output already, stuff that is going to uh, change poetry forever. And he says, can you guess it? If I take up today some of the things that interested me in the past, I find that I can no longer use them. They bore me. Every year, some part of my poetical machinery suddenly becomes of no use. As the tide of romance recedes, his love life, I presume, as the tide of romance recedes, I am driven back simply on myself and my thoughts in actual life. And my work becomes more and more like your earlier work, which seems fascinating and wonderful to me. And here he is writing to Ezra Pound. Um... And here's the actual remark from Yeats that I've mentioned a few times here. Uh, this is also from 1914. But if I give an exposition of my own mind, I am the spectator of the ages. The tale of Troy is quite near to me, probably much nearer than anything I read in this morning's paper. Poetic language expresses a vast symbolism, a phantasmagoria, going back to the beginning of the world, and always the tale of Troy, of Judea, will be nearer to me than my own garden, because I am not limited by time. I am as old as mankind. Out of all that arises, the inner art of poetry, the language of music and the arts, which is not the natural language. So in 1888 he is saying, I am not very hopeful about this book, inarticulate, etc., uh, etc. Et By 1914, uh, he has ups and downs, doubts, but he has never stopped. And that is the conclusion that he comes to. Because I am not limited by time, I am as old as mankind. And here, I believe this is the very last, or very close to the last sentence, of his 1916 book, Reveries Over Childhood and Youth. And here he is again, doubting 
but he is articulating his doubt, and it is clear just by the fact that he has written this memoir, and that he has written the poetry that came before it, and that he is continuing to write poetry. That this is an articulation of a moment, uh, but not an end to anything. Uh, it is not something that is going to stop what he's doing. Uh, it is just one of those blips, but it is important to hear that someone who is cast in bronze these days, someone who is just a, a, a shelf full of books that you can't imagine ever had a doubt or went to the bathroom or walked down the street or stubbed his toe or whatever, uh, he feels the same things that any creative person, any human person has felt. And this is what he says as he has been writing his, uh, his uh, memoirs. For some months now, I have lived with my own youth and childhood, not always writing indeed, but thinking of it almost every day, and I am sorrowful and disturbed. It is not that I have accomplished too few of my plans, for I am not ambitious, but when I think of all the books I have read, and of the wise words I have heard spoken, and of the anxiety I have given to parents and grandparents, and of the hopes that I have had, all life weighed in the scales of my own life seems to me a preparation for something that never happens. And that seems to be the particular malaise of creative people. Let me see if I can find something here very quickly. Let's see, let's see. Okay. I can't find the I'll try one more thing. Let's see. Like me right here. of dead airspace going on right now. Here we are. Uh, well, it's just that one line. Um, it was something that comforted me over the high holy days, and it confirmed me again in my uh, conversion to Judaism, that uh, I found a remark from a rabbi that said, Jewish thought pays little attention to inner tranquility and peace of mind. And I think... Uh, I think that's a good mindset to have, and it's one that, uh, whether we like it or not, most creative people live with anyway. And if anything, I hope what I read here today has suggested that at least uh, perhaps two of the most renowned poets of the last 200 years felt the same way, and yet look at what they did before they felt that way and look what they did after and look what what an impact uh, it continues to have uh, as uh, Joseph Campbell used to say the the great mythologist um, it's not what it's not the end of things or it's not the beginning of things it is the coming into being that is it if you find that creative moment uh, if you are in the middle of that moment that is what uh, you are actually looking for uh, the, the analogy that he made, that Campbell made, and I didn't 
even imagine that I would be telling this story today is of someone, uh, he says, uh, someone comes over and cuts the grass every week or two. Suppose that the grass were to say, well, what's the use? And uh, I'm going to get cut down anyway. It's the point of growing at all. And uh, Campbell says, it is the coming into being that is it. And the real struggle, the struggle of uh, the one that I've mentioned of Homer taking out the garbage is, uh, it is the coming into being that is it, but you cannot always be coming into being. So what do you do when you're not in the middle of that fire? Uh, that is the uh, that is the mystery. But as the rabbi says, um, that we should pay little attention to inner tranquility and peace of mind. Uh, there really is. And I mean this in the most positive way. I don't think I'm ending this on a downer by saying this, but there really is, if we're looking for meaning, there really is only the great struggle. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.